This is New America Now, Dispatches from the New Majority. I'm Shireen Sadegi. Coming up, the president is the second Barack Obama. The first one was even more interesting than his son. And he seemed to crave women's attention uh, sexually, emotionally. He could never be satisfied. He is an American teacher, and his is a dying breed. We should put more skin in the game when it comes to paying these effective quality teachers and making their working conditions uh, sustainable. And Oscar-nominated actress Vera Farmiga discusses her directorial debut, a film about faith. Leaving the faith is a part of having faith. Doubt is belief's twin sister. All that and more coming up on New America Now. His son is the most powerful African-American in history. But his story, you will find, is even more fascinating. Barack Obama Sr. was a man who was too much for this world, too intelligent, too charming, and too idealistic. In utter contrast to his son, Obama Sr. was a man whose public image was politically incorrect and rebellious. He said and did as he wished, often without regard to his safety or his future. In the end, he died young, having only met his now-famous son once. Joining us today is Sally Jacobs, author of the biography The Other Barack, The Bold and Reckless Life of President Obama's Father. Welcome to the show, Sally. Thank you. So why did you subtitle your book The Bold and Reckless Life of President Obama's Father? Well, because, in fact, his life was both things. Um, Barack Obama Sr. was a very bold individual uh, who took a number of risks and lived in a very bold manner, but he also was very reckless. Uh, he was a very heavy drinker. Uh, he lived a rather um, irresponsible life on many fronts. Define irresponsible, because you go into quite a lot of detail about some of the things that he did that many people might see as irresponsible. Sure. Uh, I would say that he was irresponsible both in a professional manner and also in his domestic life. Obama Sr. was a very brilliant economist, and when he returned to Nairobi in 1964, he had really his pick of jobs. But within five years of his return, he burned through three of them. Uh, he drank on the job. He showed up late. He pretended to be his bosses when it suited him, when he thought he was smarter than his boss. He did that repeatedly. Um, you know, although he was very smart, and people to this day remember that about him and what a valued economist he was, his personal lifestyle made it impossible for them to keep him on. Uh, he worked for the Kenya Tourist Development Corp., the KTDC, for a number of years. And I found people there uh, who remembered him going off to meetings and claiming he was someone who he wasn't simply because he thought he deserved the higher job. You know, in the end, he lost that job and was unemployed and really, frankly, quite lost for a number of years. He was also irresponsible in his personal life. You know, the Luo culture is a polygamous one, and it was quite common to have multiple wives. But in the Luo tradition, you live with all of your wives on your homestead and take care of them. Obama Sr. had four wives, uh, but he was a serial marrier. He went from one to the next and never quite explained who he was married to or how many children he had, which kept, every, kept everyone rather wondering. Well, when you say Luo, you're referring to the tribe in Kenya that, yes, that Obama Sr.'s father is yes. from. Yes, exactly. And you, you got to know the tribe a little bit because you, you went there so often, you met so many members of the tribe. What can you tell us about the people uh, from which President Obama comes? 
when you say the tribe in such a way, it makes it sound like it's a you know small Native American village. It's really a, a vast group um, that covers a whole area of Kenya. It's the third largest ethnic group. So it's not like it's a couple of hundred. It's thousands of people. Um, the Luo live uh, on Lake Victoria. They are farmers and also fishermen and have been for many years. Obama Sr. came from the village of Kanyajiang, which is a short distance um, from the uh, lake. And that is where many Obamas live to this day. They do, like many uh, ethnic groups, have certain traits that uh, they're known for. They're extremely smart. They're prone to telling large stories. Part of Obama Sr.'s habit was to embellish his story. That was partly his um, personal habit, but was also somewhat typical of a Luo. Uh, they tended to be academics and quite intellectual, which was also true of himself. So you explored uh, not only the, the, the land and, and the areas where the Obamas have been known to live or, or currently live. You also met with some Obamas. Um, what can you tell us about why Obama Sr. was reckless or perhaps some would say even immature in his life decisions when you consider some of the stuff you some of the information that you uncovered about his his life with his father, his parents and, and his classmates? Mm-hmm. Well, I think you're asking about his childhood a little bit uh, and what led to the kind of life uh, pattern that he lived. And he did have quite an abusive childhood. Uh, his father was well-known. His name was um, Hussein Anyango. And he himself was very smart. He traveled to Nairobi early on and uh, learned the white man's ways and came back to the village and required people to give him a great deal of respect. He had very high standards. He also uh, had a high appetite for violence. He did not hesitate to whip people if he thought they were acting out of line. People to this day talk about his four-pronged hippopotamus whip. Children would hide from him sometimes. You would never, ever speak unless he spoke to you first. He had very high standards for his son as well. When Obama Sr. came home from school, he was often required to stand at the table and recite his math sums, and he wouldn't get any dinner unless he was able to do them just so. His violence related also to his domestic situation on Younger Hussein's, and he did beat his uh, wives quite frequently, I'm told, by a number of family members, including one of his daughters. And a time came when he was very angry at Obama Sr.'s mother, uh, and he was so angry that he went out behind their house and he dug a grave for her. Her name was Habiba Akumu. And he had raised his knife into the air and was about to literally slit her throat when a neighbor came by and said, you must stop, you must stop that. He did stop, uh, but she had had it. She endured his violence for many years, and she finally ran away uh, and told the children to come and follow her if they could, which they did. But I think that uh, abandonment by his mother as a young age uh, affected Obama Sr. for the rest of his life. And and you kind of tied that into some of his uh, famous and, and in some cases infamous relations uh, and relationships with women. Yeah, I, again, I feel like it affected him profoundly. I think Obama Sr. for all of his... Um, you know, his arrogance, of which he had a great deal, and his uh, trumpeting about his own achievements was somewhat insecure, I think, because his mother's departure left him feeling uncertain about himself. You know, if your mother leaves you, you know, that's a very ungrounding thing. I think he never felt fully committed to any of the women he was with, and I think that's why he left so many of them. I think he never really connected with them in a profound way that a real union of two human beings would require. Now, this is kind of armchair psychology, of course, uh, but he did live a certain kind of a life, and he seemed to crave women's attention uh, sexually, emotionally. He could never be satisfied, and I think that's part of the reason why. You've accessed some pretty incredible primary sources um, to write this book, including 
Obama senior's immigration records, in which you found the extraordinary information that uh, a coordinated effort was made between U.S. immigration and Harvard University to put an immediate end to Obama senior's Ph.D. studies in the States. Why do you think they did that? Well, I would say it was less of a coordinate effort as it was really immigration saying to Harvard, what do you think of this guy? Every year as a foreign student, Obama senior had to get essentially a visa renewal. It was called an extension of his stay. It was a very routine thing, and every year immigration would check out, you know, how he was doing. Was he doing okay in school? Did he have enough money? That kind of thing. And they would talk to school officials. The problem for senior began when he was at the University of Hawaii, and the foreign student advisor there was troubled by all his, um, what she described as his playboy ways. That's what it was described at in one of the memos. His womanizing, basically. Womanizing. And she said to him, you need to stop this. You stop your playboy ways. And he said he would try. You know, immigration was worried. They knew he had one wife back home in Kenya. He had just married Ann Dunham, the president's mother, in uh, Hawaii, and they were worried. Was he a polygamist? Was he a bigamist? Should they deport him? I say this because there are memos that literally reflect the conversation. In the end, they decided not to deport him, uh, but to keep an eye on him. He goes off to Harvard, and again, he comes up for this extension of his stay, and INS goes to Harvard and says, Obama Sr., is he okay? Harvard had already, at this moment, had already signed off on Obama coming back the following year, 1964-65, to finish his Ph.D. Obama had done an extraordinary thing. Uh, He had done everything but his thesis. Um, He had even had a topic for that. But when they started to look into him, Harvard officials were concerned. They thought he had two wives. Then they thought maybe he had a third wife. He didn't, but they thought he did. And they didn't like it. They did not go talk to him. They did not consider his polygamous culture. They decided he was going to go. And in one of these internal memos, the three Harvard administrators decided to come up with something to get rid of him. And that's literally what it says. Uh, Within two or three weeks, they write Obama's senior letter. They say, we don't have enough money. You need to go home. He was heartbroken by this. This Harvard degree was to be, you know, critical to him, a cornerstone of his life and career, and suddenly it was snatched out of his hands. Your your book seems to indicate that the fact that he ultimately didn't get that Ph.D. as a result of being deported and, and, and all the rest of that followed, your book, your book seems to indicate that that was perhaps the defining element of his downfall. Did I read that correctly? Well, that's a little bit of an overread, to be honest with you. It was certainly significant to him, um, but there were many things that contributed contributed to it, uh, partly his alcoholism, frankly, partly his insecurity, uh, many elements, partly the political time, uh, what was happening. He was very disappointed in the drift to the right that Kenya was beginning to take. But yes, the degree was very important. At the time of independence in 1963, there were only 500, 500 Kenyan men and women who had college degrees. So these people were going to be creating, uh, they were going to be the architects of New Kenya. To have a Harvard degree, a Ph.D., would have been extraordinary. Uh, and he almost got it. He was that smart, you know. He had come from nowhere, really, barefoot, walking to school as a child, to Harvard and a Ph.D. in economics. He had passed all of his exams, oral and written, and he had started on his Ph.D thesis. And then he didn't finish. So I think it was a huge blow. Uh, and I, you know, he went on to proclaim himself Dr. Obama ever more loudly the older he got. People knew he didn't have it, but they kind of went along with it. Well, let's talk about his time back in Kenya once he was deported from the U.S. He was so idealistic. His, his vision of a social democratic Kenya was absolutely unfaltering, even when it was dangerous and even when his own friends were rising in the ranks by hiding or moving past their idealism. Why do you think he never backed down? 
Well, he was very passionate about Kenya. I feel that it was really the great love of his life. He, he was very committed to his country. Uh, when he came back, things began to change fairly quickly in a few years, politically speaking. Kenyatta was a very uh, strong-handed ruler. He had very specific ideas about what was to happen. Jomo was, Kenyatta, the first president yes, of sorry. the independent Kenya. And he had an idea for the economics of the country. There was going to be a large amount of foreign investment. Land was being held increasingly in the hands of a few. Uh, Obama believed that the country should belong to Kenyans. He wrote an article very critical of the direction that the government was taking at a time when you didn't do that. You know, it was a real personal risk to be critical. Uh, And he did do that. What consequences it had for him, no one can really say for sure. He thinks it targeted him uh, for criticism and for worse in later years. But he was a very bold person any way you look at it. President Obama's own life is such a contrast to his father's. The the shrewdness, the restraint, and, and ultimately the heights that he achieved are just so different. In the course of writing this book, did you get the impression that, that perhaps President Obama's personality was a conscious effort to avoid the errors of his father? Um. I find, in fact, that the two men have quite a bit in common, um, despite their very different experiences. You know, both of them are extremely smart. Both of them have cast themselves, whether this is true or not, but cast themselves as mediators, as conciliators. Obama Sr., between the politics of Jomo Kenyatta and the leftist Oginga Odinga, um, and the same with Obama, our president, who cast himself as a mediator. Um, and both of them, interestingly, uh, had a missing parent. Obama, the president, of course, did not have his father around, and his own father had an absent mother. And I think that also kind of defined them. I do agree with you that at a certain point in the president's life, this is what I gleaned just from his own writings in his memoir, I think he made a very clear decision uh, to uh, be a firmly rooted person, uh, a responsible person, many things that his father was not. Uh, But in a way, he's really both things. He's his father and not his father. Do you think that Barack Obama Jr. could have achieved the U.S. presidency if his outspoken and, as you say, reckless father were alive during the campaign and election season? Well, I don't know what role his father would have played in the election season. I think the larger question is, would he be the president if his father had been his father, if his father had actively parented him? Uh, And I have said often before that I don't think he would be the president. I think Obama Sr. was a very brilliant but very self-absorbed man, um, not someone who was able to nurture. And I think the president's life course inevitably would have been very different if he'd had that kind of a dominant, reckless character uh, raising him. I don't think he would have been the president. Sally Jacobs, thank you so much for joining us today to discuss this fascinating biography of President Obama's father. Thank you very much for having me. Sally Jacobs is the author of the biography, The Other Barack, The Bold and Reckless Life of President Obama's Father. You're listening to New America Now. I'm Shireen Sadegi. For more stories, visit us on the web at newamericanow.org. He's that guy who takes care of your kids all day long, every day. She's the friend they need when they're alone. He's the authority they turn to when they need help. He or she is your child's teacher, and teachers are a dying breed in America. 
There are currently 3.2 million teachers in America, but in the next few years, 1.8 million of them will be up for retirement. Of the other teachers, statistics indicate that 62% of them leave the profession within five years, and it has nothing to do with not loving what they do. Jonathan Dearman was a teacher in San Francisco for five years before he left the profession to go into the family business of real estate. He is one of a handful of teachers who are featured in a new documentary, American Teacher, and he joins us today to tell us firsthand what it's like to be an educator in America. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thank you. So you used to be a teacher. I was. I was a teacher for five years in total, predominantly in San Francisco Unified School District. But I worked at a charter school called Leadership High School. Did you like teaching? I love teaching. Um, teaching's one of the most purest, uh, artistic, and revolutionary acts one can do. And um, I stole the revolutionary line from a, a colleague at a, a student-teacher conference. I remember her saying it, and it just, it really, it resonates with me because you are, you are in the midst of a revolution. You are watching revolution happen in the minds and hearts and eyes of your students. And there's nothing greater than being part of somebody's self-discovery when they get something, when it clicks, when they have that aha moment. And I, I live for that and love for that. I love those moments uh, in the classroom and out. In, in the film American <clears throat> Teacher, where you were one of the featured teachers, at the end of the film, you are the one who said, it's the best job in the world. There's no comparison. Yeah, it is when it goes well. <laughs> well, let, let's get into that. Why mm -hmm. did you leave? What didn't go well? There were two major factors for my leaving. One of the factors was extremely personal. I wanted to be closer to my family, my daughters. My grandmother was passing away. Um, I knew she was going to pass away in the next year, and I wanted to be closer and part of her life, as well as my sisters and my, my father and mother. And then my daughters, we were homeschooling them. We had decided we were going to homeschool them as opposed to um, sending them to, to school. And I wanted to be a, play a bigger role in their lives as well. So I wanted to be able to do something where the time commitment wasn't as pressing for me. And I don't know any other way to teach in the classroom than full out, all bore, 24-7. It's just, it burned me out personally. Like It's at the end of my fifth year, and I knew that um, my sixth year I wasn't going to be as energetic, as effective. I wasn't going to be as there for the students as I felt that I needed to be to be a successful teacher. Those were my personal reasons. And then the other factor were the things that made the job difficult. And so one of the things we talk about in the film is pay. Um, but the other are just working conditions and the systems and the hoops that you have to jump through. And all those things along with the pay, for me, led to a sense of feeling... Um, demoralized or ineffective or f f a sense of futility, I, I felt a deep sense of uh, a lack of respect. Who um, was disrespecting you? And that's the other part, is that you can't say... You can't put your finger you on You can't it. put your finger on one, and it's not one individual person. It's, it's definitely society. It's definitely um, institutional. Um, systemic. It's systemic. It's the way we set the system up of how we educate young people and how we're going to um, fund it and support it. And 
you know, as a, as a teacher, I found all these outside pressures and influences dictating what I had to do on the, in the classroom. And, and, and what I thought was going or saw as the most important thing to do in the classroom was really far down the list on, on the priorities. You know, you have to, you have to take attendance because it's the only way the school will get funded. But that becomes this this thing that you have to do that can really get in the way of effective uh, classroom teaching. You know, some of the greatest moments are the first five seconds of the classroom. You can do some really amazing things. And if you have to structure that around taking attendance, taking attendance becomes the number one thing as opposed to that really effective, awesome classroom instruction moment. So that's just one example. And then and then you have, you know, uh, No Child Left Behind was beginning to come in, and so you had all these tests, things that, that became really important. And I'm not totally against tests, but I, I'm against any one thing, any one form of assessment taking the priority over any other. Primarily, the teacher, the effective teacher who's in the classroom, who knows their students, who knows her curriculum, who knows where each individual child is, where they're going to be, where they need to be, uh, to meet any standard that you set up, that that person, that individual, is given no say in how that's supposed to happen. It, it sounds like you felt like a cog in a system, what the way you were treated by the the education system, and yet you yourself felt that you were showing up every day and being a family member to students and and being a guidance counselor and being being someone who who led young people into their journey and there was a disconnect the system didn't understand that about you no and and it and it's hard all of this is very hard work and so th- there's a certain amount of um humanity and humility that we need to arm ourselves with as we have these conversations about it because it's really easy to offend individuals and to say so-and-so is not doing their job or so-and-so disrespected me or we can blame principals or we can blame superintendents or board of um, education members and and I believe there's so many well-intentioned brilliant hard-working people many of them who are sacrificing make putting the same sacrifices that I put in but were you know the analogy that I used to say when we were teaching in September once the first, there, there, there's little time for a reflection. So you get all these kids in, you're shuffling them around, you're figuring out what classes they're supposed to be in, you're, you're assessing skills. And right at the moment where you should actually take a moment, reflect, and maybe do some reorganization or, or figure out a system, you can't. You got to keep going. And so I say it's like we're driving down the freeway at 200 miles an hour and we realize we have to change the tire. And we have to do that at 200 miles an hour. That That's sort of what... All of us, I believe, in education are um, faced with, and um, we have to be willing to pull over for a second and stop and have honest conversations about all the stakeholders. It's funny, since this movie has come out, um, I was talking to Nineveh Caligari, one of the producers, and and, uh, she was showing me there was a review, a really well, I forget what review it was, but... Um, we were warning each other, let's not read the comments at the end, <laughs> you know, because, you know, people sort of lose their humanity, particularly in those situations. And I feel like we, we need to, I, I'm very protective of people who are working in education, everybody who's working in education, and I don't want to blame one person. I, I would just like us all to stop. 
Stop what, though? What, what is the solution? I mean, there are countries in the world, in Europe, in Asia, even in Africa, to be honest, mm-hmm. um, where the teacher is, is viewed as a guru, is viewed with respect. Mm-hmm. If you say, my father was a teacher, mm-hmm. I'm a teacher, mm-hmm. that carries a kind of weight that mm-hmm. it feels like you're telling me does not exist right. in this country. Yeah, I, I think that's the, the first first thing that I would like us to see is honor the voices of effective classroom teachers who are working in public schools right now and going to them and asking them, what's the best way to raise the standards of our students? What are the best ways to assess their standards? How can we best prepare students uh, for and I put a an ellipsis dot 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 because I don't because I don't believe every child wants to or necessarily needs to, is going to be sacrilege. I hope my father's not listening. I don't believe every child needs to necessarily go to college. I believe other many people have different paths, and college may be one of them, and college may be further down the line. So, how do you address? How do you prepare students for their path? And and I believe that the, the, we we have to ask the people who are working closest with those students, those classroom teachers, how to do that, the effective ones. So I would want to, to have that conversation. So that's at least put into play when we talk about standards and assessment. I also believe that we should put more skin in the game when it comes to paying these effective quality teachers and making their working conditions uh, sustainable. In the film, we hear from students of yours some of them are emotional when they tell us what you meant to them in their lives and how bad it felt to lose you. Where do you see the education system going? Let's not even talk about the United States. Just right here in the San Francisco Bay, where do you see it going? Do you think it's getting worse for teachers and students? Or, or? Well, I think it's we're, we're faced with a huge doomsday scenario because there are a number of teachers who are coming up for retirement nationally and, and locally. And and. Right now, we're not creating a system that is attractive to people to enter the profession wherever they are, either uh, from college or entering from other professions. It's not attractive to a lot of people. So I, I would look to, in the immediate term, start fixing that. And part of it is pay, but the other part is working conditions. The great thing that we have in education, and there's a... Uh, book by uh, Daniel Pink called Drive, and he's, I believe he's an economist, but he talks about what motivates people, particularly in the workplace. And when you're looking at high-functioning individuals who are doing high-level critical thinking skills like teachers, money doesn't motivate them. Money motivates them insofar as they don't have to think about money. So if, if you pay teachers so that cost of living so that they don't have to think about raising their family, paying their mortgage maybe having one vacation a year and being able to afford that, where they don't have to think about money, they're going to be highly motivated because what motivates us the most in these high-functioning jobs, professions, is purpose. We have to have purposeful work. And that's the one thing, I think that's the one thing that sustained the teaching profession is because it's so purposeful. And that purpose is immediate. You see it every day. You see the progress of your students every day. So I think we can build on that. We can build on the purpose of teaching and, and sort of advocate that for people who are looking to enter, enter in a profession. But we have to remove the money. Right now, money is a hindrance, particularly in urban settings, because the cost of living is uh, so high. It, it's so high in most urban settings. So, 
Do you think you'll ever go back to teaching? I teach every day. I have two daughters. I have an 11-year-old and a 15-year-old, and I teach and learn every day. And teaching is, you know, the, the students who are in the film, former students, I mean, they're grown people now. They're, you know... <laughs> They're Berkeley graduates. Yeah, they're some Berkeley of them. graduates and lawyers, and they're getting graduate degrees. And 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 many of them are. I'm in touch with them on Facebook. But uh, w when you talk to them about what you know, the most important thing about you know being in the classroom and what's effective and what what worked, it's not that I did something to them. It's that we were in this relationship together, right? Th these are really extraordinary people who I I had the fortune to be in the classroom with. They would um, say the same of you. Yeah, but it, it doesn't work if 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 I'm sort of God or or if I bow, if they're bowing to me or I'm just bowing to them. They're, it's a relationship, and some relationships work really well and some don't. You know, I bet if you went and interviewed the, the, the students I student taught when I was in college, they'd be like, "Really? Not so much." You know, that Deerman <laughs> guy. That good Deerman guy. I, I, I got stories <laughs> about what I did that wasn't not too proud of, but, but you know, it was, it's a learning process. But I always think of myself as an educator. I always think of myself, I'm a lifelong learner. So in my profession, I, I try to teach. In my family life, I try to teach. In my hobbies, when I play, I try to use the skills of education. In my business, we have staff meetings, and it, it may come as a shock to them, but the way I structure my staff meetings is exactly how we structured our professional development meetings at, not we, I should say Greg Peters structured the professional development meetings at um, Leadership High School. So I think educators are, are the, the most brilliant, creative, flexible people ever who can, you have, to be, you have to be really flexible. You have to be able to live and embrace and swim in the ambiguity of a moment. And, you know, those are really fun people to be around <laughs> at the end of the day, so... You're a teacher, and they can never take that away from you. No, no. Thank you so much for your time today, Jonathan. Thank you, Sharon. Jonathan Dearman is a former teacher who is featured in the award-winning new documentary, American Teacher. listening to New America Now, Dispatches from the New Majority on KALW 91.7 FM in San Francisco. I'm Shireen Sadegi. For more stories, visit us on the web at newamericanow.org. Outside of La Honda, California, there's an alternative juvenile probation program run by the city of San Francisco. It's called Log Cabin Ranch, and the mission is to keep young men out of the more punitive detention programs by incarcerating them in a rural setting and providing them with a six to nine month program of counseling, education, and vocational training. For a series we're calling Listen In at the Log Cabin Ranch, we gave some of the young men microphones and asked them to take us into their lives. Today, we introduce Chuk. 
Alright, my name is Chooks. Chuko. So it's approximately 104. Hit Miss B class. This is where I got my GD. Miss B, I'm about to fit the humor. So let me see, let me see. I feed the hummingbirds every now and then. Um, I feed them sugar water. Climb the ladder so I could get the hummingbird feeder. As you can hear them. Those are the hummingbirds. To me, there's some beautiful birds. It's amazing. I'm getting the food. There's a store right here. By the way, they love this stuff. I think it's amazing how they like a lot of sugar. I mean, who doesn't, right? back I go rinse this off see I'm about to go rinse it off because if I leave it out like this the ants are gonna try to creep all over it and that's disgusting Why I do this? Because I like feeding the hummingbirds. Just like makes me feel I'm doing something for the community here at Long Cabin Ranch. Makes me feel like I'm giving back to nature since nature gives a, gives us a lot of oxygen, you know? Who would expect that from a person locked up? Who in the right mind would expect that, right? Nobody. People think that just just because we're so-called gangsters, we don't have a heart. Well, wrong. We do. Listen in at the Log Cabin Ranch was produced for New America Now by Lisa Morehouse with support from Will Roy and The Beat Within. The program was funded by the Zellerback Family Foundation and the City of San Francisco Probation Department. You're listening to New America Now. I'm Shireen Sadegi. For more stories, visit us on the web at newamericanow.org. In ancient days and ancient lands, the poet was the guru, the man and sometimes the woman who the public turned to for wisdom, counsel, and hope. In ancient Iran, there were Hafez and Rumi. In England, there was Shakespeare. And the list goes on until it fades. Because today, the poet doesn't quite hold the same esteem. Michael Rothenberg is out to change that notion 
From his home in Sonoma County, California, he has managed to organize the biggest ever gathering of international poets to demonstrate to the world that the poet is alive and well and still the voice of change. His event is called 100,000 Poets for Change, and it takes place this weekend in 450 cities in 95 countries to promote serious social, environmental, and political change, including right here in the Bay Area. Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So first off, tell us about this weekend's event. Well, it's the it's 100,000 Poets for Change. I, I posted an event invitation on my Facebook account and invited my friends. I was feeling kind of despairing about the world situation, global warming and the wars and immigration problems and just feeling hopeless. And I said that thought there ought to be 100,000 poets for change. So um, I was telling that to a friend. They said, that's a good idea. So I went and created a event page, and I had 4,000 Facebook friends. Um, I'm a poet and uh, editor, and so I have people who are poets and writers and artists around the world. And I invited them. I said, asked them if they were interested in doing a poetry demonstration celebration with other people around the world on September 24th. And almost immediately I started to hear back from people saying, yeah, I'd like to do that. And I, I had 20 cities and 10 countries, and I thought, that's really great. Then there was 50 cities and 20 countries. And so now... It's 650 events in 450 cities in 95 countries, people all around the world deciding that we need change and that poetry and art is a way to articulate that need. So and what are, what are you guys going to do? The, the 95 countries, 450 cities, 100,000 poets for change. What's going to happen this weekend? The, the guidelines for the program... I've said the change would fall under the guidelines of peace and sustainability and that the local organizations would determine what subject specifically they would want to address. For instance, in um, Vancouver, Canada, they want to talk about um, the river. They're going to do a river cleanup. So they're going to have a river cleanup. Then there's going to be poetry reading in Afghanistan in in Kabul and Jalalabad, they're going to have a peace reading. In Reading, Pennsylvania, is quite interesting. They have a problem with violence and crime, and they declare they were going to turn the day into reclaiming the city and renaming the city from violence to having hundreds poets, musicians, buskers, food carts, art, ballet, and turn it into a festival downtown they blocked off two streets and now the whole community is involved as a way of you know a new identity for themselves so so you you have organized an event where you celebrate poetry and the arts as a way of effecting change how can poets change things well a poet that cleans the river certainly is cleaning the river so <laughs> If you want immediate change, you got that. How can poetry change things? 
Well, it's language, and people communicate through language, and people change are, are changed by their ideas that they hear and read, and poets are great articulators, and poets are observers, and, and they're readers, so they have, they have the words to communicate new ideas. and to tra- The traditional function of a poet in a culture from the beginning of time was to tell the story of the tribe and tell the story of the community that was all they were always trusted with that that responsibility and and this is what we're doing but the traditional role of a poet has has rather changed in, in 2011 you don't have you know Hafiz and Rumi and Shakespeare um sort of guiding the people's uh cultural and political consciousness do you hope to change that with this event sounds like a good idea perfect examples <clears throat> yeah I mean poets need to feel empowerment amongst themselves first they need to say <clears throat> that they have the ability and that they have the voice so they need to reclaim that power they they need to feel that they they can um, reach out and make that kind of expression that's a big part of the change that's taking place here because we are talking about poets around the world saying, wait a second, we're tired of being marginalized. We're tired of being separated from each other and alienated each other and pushed to the side as, as people who are irrelevant and, and who just sit around complaining and instead say, we re- we're picking up the mantle once again of what, the greatness of what we do. And we will, and together, so, we will redirect the narrative of, of society and take, it, and take that narrative, which is, tells us daily that the world is going to end or that, there's, that destruction and global war, warming are inevitable. And we take that, that narrative and we say, no, we're going to redirect that. So this isn't just about the public's empowerment. It's about the empowerment of of poets and bringing poets together. And it's interesting um, that you managed to organize all of this without ever meeting another soul. You did all of this on the Internet. Yeah, I'd say, well, there are there is a the unspoken community of poets globally and of of course, with the social networking, we have this ability to to communicate outside of the preordained and established channels of communication, uh, as you see in the Arab Spring and you see in in Cairo. You see, and I think that we we borrow a lot from from that that we will communicate amongst ourselves, and that we recognize the common goal of of freedom and a desire for peace and sustainability. How has the internet impacted poetry and and the idea of the poet in our era? Well, poets have been—I mean, poets have been online from 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 the beginning. I have one friend who says, you know, that the writers are the people who really dominate the internet. Writers, right? Um, I don't know. I know that that we've been we've been sharing the same spaces online. I've never spoken with so many people from so many places in my in my life, but I'm talking with other poets from other cultures and learning their ways of expression and their concerns 
transforms me as a poet. It makes me a different poet. It makes me a better poet, I think. And there are a number of events right here in the Bay Area. Can you tell us about those? Well, there's about 22 events in the Bay Area, which is another remarkable thing. I've never, I've been living in the Bay Area for 35 years, and I've never seen anything like it. There'll be poets in the Civic Center. Um, there'll be uh, three events in North Beach at the Beat Museum, at the Focus Gallery, at the uh, Art International Cafe. The San Francisco Guerrilla Opera is going to do an action. Um, there's the 3300 Club in the Mission. There's in the East Bay in, in Berkeley, there's Moe's Books and the Subterranean Art House. And in Oakland, there's an Oakland uh, Public Library sponsored by Penn. Um, there's the uh, Oakland Spoken Word Group. There's Hayward and Alameda. There's great groups, events in Santa Rosa. The Peace and Justice Center is involved in a couple of readers, readings. There's events in uh, San Rafael. So there's so many readings, and the interesting thing also is that the instead of people being very isolated from their styles, say, well, this is an event of university academics, or this is an event of slam poets. This is the event of all poets. Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. I wish you all the success with your event this weekend, and uh, we'll look out to see what other events you have coming up. Thank you so much for having me. Michael Rothenberg is the organizer of 100,000 Poets for Change, an event that takes place in 450 cities in 95 countries this weekend. For more information, go to www.bigbridge.org slash 100,000 Poets for Change. You're listening to New America Now. If you'd like to hear more from this guest, visit us online at newamericanow.org. She is an Oscar-nominated actress. That woman who snuggled up to the A-list actor you fantasize about, and the lady who played a strong female role you thought no longer existed in Hollywood. Vera Farmiga is also now a director. Her new feature film, Higher Ground, takes a look at the religious awakening and death of a young woman in small-town America. She joins us today to talk film, celebrity, and what it was like growing up as a Ukrainian-American. Welcome to New America Now, Vera. Thank you, Shireen. (laughs) Nice to talk to you here. So this is your first film as director. Um, did you feel comfortable just sort of jumping into a film like this? Uh, no, nah, not at all. <laughs> In all honesty, it was circumstantial. It took me by surprise. Um, it's one of those life's challenging surprises since I've become a mother. I think that birthing has made me all the more aware of death. <laughs> and with death comes a challenge. Uh, what are you going to do with your time? You know, I think it was one of these moments where it was a necessity. The project would not have happened unless I made the decision to direct. What is it, though, about Hollywood? I mean, is is the, the deep sort of spiritual or profound character of a woman 
not going to sell tickets? No, I think it's marketing. <laughs> it's actually stri- the strategy of marketing. It comes down to that because Hollywood can look in this in these fiscal times investing in a film. It takes a lot of faith. It's like who's you know where we're, we're all keeping our cash. We're all sitting on our cash right now. Um, so for someone to invest in a story, you you want to see payback. It's a business. Bottom line, it's a business. But even in times that weren't recession, I mean Hollywood. You know, sex sells. It's it's not different now than in that respect, is it? Well, you know, it has to do with the distribution. I think it stems from distribution because it's not like I'm not encountering those scripts. I don't I, where I don't see stories with, with female, you know, female centric, the sense or the centric characters. I, it's not that I don't see, you know, that I'm not direct. My favorite experiences have been with women, Deborah Granick and 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 Gina Kim and uh, Nikki Caro. Those have, blatantly for me, been been my favorite. Maybe it's just relating to them on very deep levels. But uh, I don't know the answer to that. My suspicion is it's marketing. Uh, who is it easiest to sell a ticket to? 14-year-old boys. Uh, as, as I can only come from my own personal experience as a mother, it's very rare for me to pay for a ticket. I can now it's easier for Netflix and to see an online caddy member. I, I get very privileged sort of access to films uh, in film festival outlets and venues and and i get sent films at the end of the year as an academy member so so i get to see it but when do i actually take initiative and go see a story you can argue maybe there's just not the kind of stories i want to go see but it's also is like stories about women i think are going are, are going to sell mostly to women and women yeah, just don't buy tickets i mean let's talk about how you marketed well, this film and often, this isn't how many films do you see how many films do you see a week I see a lot because I have Hulu but and but, Netflix. But it's also your profession. It's also your profession. And it's, not, it's so not, you know, I, I, I don't know. I'd have to, like, I don't know what the figures are. I go by the women in my own life. I look I'm like, my mom is such a bitch. She's got so much on her shoulders. You know, balancing, providing for her family. And, um, and you know, it is my career. So, yeah, I see, I see a lot of films as well. But it's, there's something, there's, look, I think the more, this was my experience. Higher Ground was my experiment. In, and I stacked the odds against me. I made a film about faith and religion and spirituality. And it's not easy to market a film like this. And it it's is. not sexy. It's not sexy, is it, exactly? Um, there is a lot of... Uh, there's. There, we certainly exper- we explore sexuality. And how, for example, there's a character of Annika, Corinne, my, the protagonist in our film. It's her best friend. And, and it's a beautiful representation of female friendship. And Annika is someone who is able to be her fullest spiritual self and her fullest carnal self and to integrate the two beautifully. Um, so, yes, we do explore sexuality and sensuality and, and how to find, like, how to embrace that aspect without limiting other, you know, how to how we find God in, in, in those elements of, of our personality and how, you know, is it a sexy, there are sexy moments in there are very sexy moments in the film. And, and, and that's part of portraying people of faith in full dimension. Like they're not prudes <laughs> and, you know, whatever your concept of God is that, that God has, has sex is, is divine <laughs> and it's a great gift. And, and so, so we explore that aspect in the film. But I stack the odds against me. This is a film that, you know, is very hard to market because it's not a film. It's a film about faith. It's not strategic for believers. It's not representing people of faith as how they yearn to be or representations that, you know, of, of like that portray believers in, in in the ways they want to be or they yearn to be. It's, the, it's portraying 
<laughs> how they are. How? Are you a believer? Do, do you believe in God? I mean, are you I are you have my concept of God that's very real to me? And it's it's going to take a lifetime to be able to and I and I defining it in an interview is very difficult to me because it's such a like do I pray yes you don't have to be religious to pray but I I I absolutely there are it's a big tool in my life I think the inherent in our minds and our personalities is is got a great strength and uh, potential and ability and and prayer is a, is a really useful tool for me to tap into it. Yeah, I tend to pray more in in need <laughs> than in gratitude. But to me, it's it's really important. And just knowing that, I mean, I've come from a Catholic and Pent- and Pentecostal. It's like two very very different kinds of denominations within Christianity. I mean, that's the faith I was raised in. It was sort of the very structured, very uh, pomp and circumstance, like uh, the very ritualized Ukrainian Catholicism, but. Um, and then my parents also um, sort of brought us up in, in a very non-denominational Pentecostal uh, faith. What about institutions? I mean, do you go to church? Are you a Christian? I do go to church, and I go to Buddhist temple, <laughs> and I feel as comfortable worshiping in either. I could go to Southern Baptist Church, and I and and I don't know, I, I could. Uh, just as easily feel comfortable in a mosque if, if allowed to if allowed to experience it as such because I'm seeking God and what that means to me. Right now, I don't feel comfortable saying that I belong to any certain denomination because it's such a man-made construct. <laughs> and to me, a life seeking God, whatever that means to you, seeking your definition of God, seeking God is a life with God. So, uh... Again, it's like, uh, it's very, you know, I, I find it's, it's interesting in, in navigating the press for this that people really want to draw direct <laughs> correlations like, is this you? Is this you? And to be a photographer and photograph a certain condition like poverty doesn't mean that you're necessarily. <laughs> but the photographer isn't in the image. The, the question I have no, is. But his, it, but his or her, as the case may be, her perceptions and feelings and memories and ideas her own yearnings are there influencing the shot so in abstract ways i can tell you yes of course my there's huge influence and on one hand it is me (laughs) that you're seeing and on the other hand it's not me at all it's carolyn briggs and it's my acknowledgement of of her journey being a holy one you know a sanctimony, you know, like a, the sanctity of her trip. Like to me, I had to relate on a powerful level. I I had to identify on a deep level, and and this woman's yearning to come from a genuine self. It takes an enormous amount of courage to to, to always come from an authentic place. Well, talking about where she came from, and and also bringing it back to to discussion about you, because you are playing her in this film and you just told us that you need to bring some part of yourself to the film. Is it possible for someone like yourself or the character in this film who has, I don't want to say been indoctrinated, but perhaps been instilled with a certain, um, any religious teaching from a young age, is it possible for that person to ever leave the idea of faith? It's personality. It so depends on... on, um... Oh, you're, I know you're asking me in particular, and I can only come from my own experience. To leave the faith, leaving the faith is a part of having faith. 
it is, in my own very personal experience, doubt is belief's twin sister that takes you around that unknown curve. You can't have one without the other. It's not true faith. It's not true religion. <laughs> if, you, if you don't, it means your mind's at work. It's, it's so hard talking about concepts of God because that resonates with us. Our concepts of God resonate so differently with each other. But to me, the common ground here, <laughs> um, the higher ground was to look, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, we're, it's times of holy war. People's concepts of God are at war. Gods of love are, are <laughs> gods of hate. Let me, let me jump back to you because yeah. um, we don't often get a chance to interview a Ukrainian-American. <laughs> <laughs> you, you grew up in a sort of very isolated community early on. You've, well, it's you know been what? Isolation, I, that, that's, that's, like, that's the myths that they create about you. It's a commu- it's like a, what community did you grow up in? What is your identity? I grew up in an Iranian-American right. community. Um, a Ukrainian-American. Do you feel like it was isolated? No. It's just, it's part of being American. <laughs> you know? I'm. Are you American? I'm a Ukrainian-American. That's my identity. You know, that just is. It's just is what I, you know, that's how I was brought up as a Ukrainian-American. It's like my grandmothers and great-grandmothers and my my mom, their, like their <laughs> journeys are very much a part of who I am. And I have a great pride in my heritage and a great pride of what they have achieved and come through and the perseverance and the challenge that they, in order for me to be able to experience my life accordingly. And, um, and so I think in some, I don't know, some, it's been interpreted somewhere that it's been a real strict, I mean, it's not, it's an all American, it's an all American story, really. Um, it's. Yeah, there's rules. I mean, that's just the nature of family. There are rules and regulations. Parents have a certain set of ideas. And and you, until you're 18, you kind of have to adhere to them. And, and, and they can only point you in a certain direction that has worked for them. But the Ukrainian-American community, yeah, that's another reason. Like, I, 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 I'm, I gravitate towards a film about finding identity in, and in community and the importance of community. And sometimes having the gumption to, <laughs> uh, you know, to pull apart from sort of the, the communities, um, I don't know, having the courage to, to step outside of that community's role for you. How do we say thank you in Ukrainian? Duže vam dziakuju. Just say dziakuju. Dziakuju. Proszę duże. Dziakuju, Vera Farmiga. Thank you so much for joining us today. Proszę duże, Shirin. Vera Farmiga is an Oscar-nominated actress. Her directorial debut is called Higher Ground. Thanks for listening to New America Now, dispatches from the new majority. Inter-ethnic, international, and intergenerational news for the new America. If you'd like to hear more from any of our guests today or subscribe to a podcast of our program, go to newamericanow.org. New America Now is produced at the KALW Studios in San Francisco by New America Media. Thanks for joining us. I'm Shireen Sadegi.